Welcome to PeaceCast, our podcast where we talk about pop culture, theology, politics, and why the church sometimes makes us want to cry in the shower. I'm Joel. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dave. Hello. We have three parts as always. Conversation starter, what about them politics, and why church, why. For our conversation starter, Dave wants to ask me about a book I find particularly uh, interesting and um, intriguing for whatever reason. And for What About Them Politics, we're going to be discussing the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and what it means to have a Pentecostal Prime Minister. Dun, dun, dun. And for Why Church Why, we're going to be looking at and <laughs> our continuing theme of The Laity Strikes Back. <laughs> part two. <laughs> part two. Special expose. Yeah, special expose <laughs> resulting in our excommunication. <laughs> the problem of clericalism. Mm. So for our conversation starter, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we talked to me about my favourite books and I suggested very quickly after that that we talk about Joel's favourite books and he had an existential crisis <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and wouldn't get up from bed for weeks uh, because he was asked to, to pick a few favourites out of many, many. So he's actually managed to pick, I, I presume just arbitrarily, uh, one single book Pretty that much. he is particularly interested in Pretty that much. he's going to talk about that... Um, that reflects something of his interest. So what book have you chosen to talk to us about, Joel? It's true. I do I do have a bit of a crisis with these things because it just sort of seems to re- smell. It smells of authenticity, mm. you know, getting down to the deep and real, Joel. Yeah. I, I would much rather continue our conversation about your gym photos. <laughs> My gym photos? Yeah. <laughs> Is it a saturated, a saturated evil? <laughs> John Milbank yeah. says that my wife and I going to the gym is a saturated evil. He's onto something and you feel convicted. My understanding of saturated is like saturated phenomena is something that is like all encompassing. So that I couldn't be doing anything more evil That's right. than pumping. That's right. It's just multiple getting layers my pump of it. On. You're basically marinating in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So on that note, a book. I chose for this exercise um, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Earthsea Quartet. Mm. Um, Le Guin, uh, unfortunately, died, I think, last year, actually. Was um, this year. Was, was it? Was couple, it? it was a couple of months ago. No. Was it a couple of months ago? like a handful of months ago. I don't know. Recently. Mm. Um, unfortunately. And she's one of the, um, well, godmothers or grandmothers of um, fantasy, epic fantasy literature and sci-fi literature, actually. Mm. And The Earthsea Quartet was begun in 1968. And it's, I love it because it's, it's poetic, it's political, it has a romanticism about it, but it's also got a kind of um, melancholic realism. Mm. Um, I don't want to give too many spoilers because Dave will get to this book <laughs> at some time, I imagine. It's on my shelf. And uh, as you know from previous podcasts, I don't like spoilers and I feel already I'm engaging in emotional spoilers so Mm. um, you'll just have to bear with me. So these books follow the life of a character named Ged in which he explores himself and how he helps to restore balance in the world and when he meets a priestess named Tenna. Um, There's a bunch of themes in these books that I think are echoed in in later fantasy literature. So there's the continual notion you get in fantasy literature of kind of the the loss and retrieval Um, 
uh, the, that that there is something that has to be reawoken in society mm. for society to be put on right order again. Mm. Um, there's the fear. There's uh, the idea in these books of those that are the sort of the the true barbarians and the ones that fear magic. So you mm. see this like in Harry Potter, right? Mm. The the real simpletons and the real um, you know the real people who live in. Um, um, behind a veil of deception and so on are the muggles, the mm. non-magic people. Um, and there's a focus as well in, in this work on the idea of true names and speaking correctly as being a form of power. Mm. Um, but I, I, I picked out for this a, a couple of themes and narratives that I thought were particularly powerful. They resonate with me and maybe have shaped some of my thinking even in the way I read stuff. And so I'll just reflect on each one and then see what you think. Um, so first is, this, is an idea about what is sort of almost the nature of um, evil within yourself. So the character Ged, he's like, you know, he's a typical young prodigy mage. Mm. Um, but he's a hothead and in the course of a duel with another student, he unleashes an, uh, a kind of evil onto mm. the world. But the evil is kind of this, just this actual weird shadowy figure. Mm. And without trying to spoil it, you, you, you learn that actually the battle is actually with more to do with his own pride and literally coming to terms with himself and how his wrong actions cause a rupture in relations. So it's not this malevolent, tangible evil. You know, there's not like you get this in the Wheel of Time, for example, you know, mm. the dark one. Yeah. You know, there you go. You know, pretty <laughs> palpable yeah. entity of some kind. But instead it's the um it's the it's the it's the evil that one finds within oneself. Yeah. Right. And so you say so the character uh brings that brings that darkness out into the yeah. world somehow through doing spells or yes, something. Yes, and it manifests into the world and starts disrupting his relationships and actually sets his life on a wrong course that mm. eventually he has to then face up to mm. this thing. Now, there's a bit of, you know, sort of cosmic balance, almost yin-yang yeah. sort of idea there as well. Yeah. But the I like the notion there that actually the evil is not, um, you know, necessarily of a real substance. Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's, not e- it's easy if it, it would be much easier if you could just say, yeah. look at that, dark figure of pure malevolent evil, yeah. it's much harder to say um, I and my agency have mm. have within me the yeah. capacity to act contrary to the good yeah. and to rupture relationship. Actually, funnily reminds me of um, uh, I've been reading uh, Doctor Strange comics um, from the last couple of years. Right. Um, there's, a great, there's a great run that's still going on at the moment actually. But um, it kind of gets into more of the lore behind his the, his magic in that. There's this very interesting, it's very Lovecraft-inspired, um, this little arc that's going on where um, you find out that every time Doctor Strange does a spell, something equally um, harmful happens um, right. to himself and um, he, he has created this creature that he keeps in his cellar that is taking all of the damage that he does through the natural consequences of doing magic mm. and it's called Mr. Misery and it's all of his pain in this kind of ectoplasmic form that ends up getting out. It's, yeah, Gosh, it's that's very like, interesting. That's that, like the Rick and Morty episode. Really? Yeah, where Which they take one? all their psychological baggage and they put it into the oh, toxic yeah, yeah, verse. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it also reminds me of a bit of um, The Name of the Wind, uh, the Rothfuss books, how the way that it's a it's more happening in the physical rather than moral right. universe that... Um, that it's almost like laws of chemistry or physics when when a spell is right. done. If you 
produces a heat, you have to produce that much coldness right. and, and things like that. Yeah. But I, I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, and it's a different, and it's like I said, it's a different take on some other epic fantasies where, mm. you know, sometimes there's just a clear, unambiguous evil there, right? Mm. A, a second theme I, I find that actually, you know, again, it can resonate. And, and, you know, we talk about these things in part because they help. I think they've sort of structured the way sometimes we think in, about the world as such, mm. right? So um, in his quest to balance the world, Ged is led to this kingdom that reviles magic users and he meets Tenna, this priestess. Now, mm. her name, she's a priestess and it literally means in their language, the eaten one. And she's a priestess that's been essentially consecrated to darkness itself, what they refer to as the nameless one. And at one point, Ged's trying to draw her out of this and he does mm. in the end and so on. And, and he talks to her about how um, the nameless one is simply a form of oppression, a crushing darkness, and that he says it offers nothing, it gives nothing, and what it leaves Tenor with is simply a lingering rage or a, set, a sense of unsettled disappointment. Mm. And there's then, then connect that with the later book in which he's travelling around with the future king, and what's happened is a, one of the mages has disrupted the order of the universe because he's extending his life unnaturally. Mm. And this leads to people forgetting words, forgetting the words of songs, forgetting the words of poems. The dragons of the kingdom become just simply bestial, whereas mm. they usually used to be hyper-rational and so on. Um, and what I like about this is there's a kind of sense of allegorically the loss of meaning or the loss of a tradition that's accompanied by enemy or nihilism, right? Mm. What, what ha- what, the question is, what happens when you forget what it means to be a human, mm. including what it means to be a finite being? And this is consequences for a cultural and social living and we become like bestial dragons, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And again, here it's not really an external threat, right? Mm. Like it's not really, again, this simply dark figure. Tenor is consumed by an absence yeah. or a darkness. Um, and so it's kind of, I think of it like kind of... Um, there's a character, uh, there's a kingdom in the Game of Thrones as well. I don't like those books, but mm. there's a kingdom in there where they offer up their um, everything to the um, drowned god. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And uh, and it's the same sort of idea. It's sort of you can be consumed by something that's the, actually the ultimate. Yeah, that's yeah. ultimately a darkness. You know, yeah. like a consumer society, you can yeah. keep on feeding and feeding and feeding upon that, but it ultimately offers you nothing. Yeah, it's um, like the the Ring in Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah. Oh, and the way that Frodo becomes ultimately insubstantial or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I think it makes me think of, you know, Augustine says about um, uh, when you don't find your rest in God, he says uh, that you flit from phantasms through phantasms yeah, of the mind, yeah. um, you know, that offer you nothing and mm. other than a sense of disquiet or mm. discomfort or whatever. Um, and so that's that, that idea both that you have to try and find the true good or the true words... Mm. Um, in order to have a rightly ordered society or yeah. a society that is flourishing, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's not that there's a malevolent evil, but actually the sheer absence that creates an enemy and nihilism. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's um, such a powerful theme in high fantasy literature, this theme that there are certain types of magics that you you just cannot do safely without unleashing forces of chaos which is, you know, such a powerful moral lesson for our times, um, which goes unheeded in an age of kind of technologism and things like that where everything can be instrumentalised and rationalised. Yeah, and it's um, in this, it's not so, and it's not even this, in these books at least, it's not that the magic is, 
has real power, like mm. the darkness, it's that its power comes through it being an oppressive ultimate absence. Mm. Um, you know, so she doesn't invoke some grand old demon or something. Mm. She um, she is part of a cult that is anti-human yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Um, now the third theme, I, I just want to touch on this because if anyone knows Le Guin and I don't mention this, they'll think I'm a criminal. Um, just the third theme is that Le Guin is... is as a feminist and she's got some masterful and wonderful reflections on mm. gender. In fact, one of her books, The Left Hand of Darkness, is a world where gender is literally fluid across a person's life um, in which they can occupy different mm. states um, with their, within um, at different times of their life. Mm. Um, and then that raises the question about how you tr build trust yeah. in the absence of gendered interaction. Yeah. Um, but in these books, uh, the Ursi Quartet, you get these really fascinating things about how the male-dominated world of magic mm. comes along with celibacy. So men quite had literally have to engage in a denial of their relationship to femininity in order to gain power. Yeah, right, um, right. And then there's these strong female characters that then come along and have to show the man how to be a man again yeah. um, amidst the struggles of being a woman in this patriarchal society and mm. so on. So it's, yeah. and it's And it's one of the only fantasy books you read in some ways where the woman is actually, um, Tenna that is, is a strong character with a interiority mm. and a sense of, um, you know, um, deep sympathy for her as opposed to, you know, yeah. like, again, just contrasting like The Wheel of Time, which I read all through my youth and I loved and so on. Mm. But you could tell uh, <laughs> Robert Jordan's essentially a misogynist yeah. who, um, if the you could tell a woman in the book was evil because she was described as homely oh. <laughs> or worse, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's really bad. Yeah. Whereas this was just, you know, especially growing up five boys and so mm. on, to have actually richly realized woman in your, yeah. in, your uh, in literature. Yeah. And that, but just that theme as well of the man gains power through emasculating himself or no, or removing himself from that gendered relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I feel like um, I, we should probably move on, but um, yeah, Robin Hobb has a lot of really interesting things in those right. regards as well, especially around gender identity and things like that as well. We should just do an episode on Robin Hobb at some we point. should. Yeah. I have to get around to finishing yes. the, the series though. Mm. Um, Sarah and I like to just talk about it and then like plant <laughs> plant a book in David's, David's mind and then two years later he goes, you are <laughs> shake a fist. I'm, I'm literally four books into the Harry Potters <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> oh, uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, well, so I should de definitely read those books. Sarah loves those and she particularly likes the um, explorations of like celebrate a celebration of women, womanness and the particular magic of feminine genius and yeah. things like that. And Harry Potter, I mean, Harry Potter's great. The idea there as well is that Voldemort is acting anti-human. Mm. He is extending himself unnaturally and so on and not mm. recognising himself as a finite creation. Mm. Um we're going to move on, yeah. as Dave said. And as Liam is, he's always oh, got his hand on his head, a furrowed brow, <laughs> wondering why are we lingering on these books? No, Liam loves books. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, okay, we're talking about what about their politics? ScoMo. ScoMo. Hashtag. Uh, you know, have you seen that he's changed his signature on his, on his awesome bus yeah. to just ScoMo? So he's had like about three different signatures in the course of about... <laughs> 
six months. I have to show you later though. Um, do you, you don't follow the Liberals against the Simpsons against the Liberal no. Party? They changed the bus. The bus thing yeah. is hilarious. So I'll, You've got a stupid butt, you kiss your own butt. <laughs> so, got, so, so our Prime Minister, um, Scott Morrison, what we're interested in is that uh, he is the first openly, <laughs> the first Pentecostal Prime Minister uh, for Australia. Um, now there are two points of interest here for us. One is how this has been received and mm. how it has been talked about this idea of his Pentecostalism. Mm. Um, and the second is then what does it mean? What do we think it means or what can we speculate on it meaning as 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 a as a projection of the relationship between church and executive or civil authority, in particular through the Prime Minister, in Australia, especially in light of the Prime Minister's Pentecostal mm. affiliation. So yeah. on that first question, Dave, how it has been received, how would you characterize it? And Go from there. Um, yeah, I think in a way it's been like flat out bigoted um, in a sense. I mean, um, I was reflecting on it. So, Joel, you're from a Pentecostal background um, <coughs> and have, have Pentecostal roots and things like that. So um, you, you might be sensitive to this as well. So and sensitive. Like, um, so, you know, obviously I am not a Pentecostal and I have theological reservations about Pentecostalism as well. But when I used to see Pentecostal brothers and sisters just being ridiculed just for being Pentecostal in the media. I actually get my gets my eye up a bit, and I know sometimes I will make jokes about it, but I feel like they're inter-family jokes about Pentecostalism, and it's a bit like when you see like see someone else picking on your little brother, um, and <laughs> you say I'm allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to. But uh, yeah, I do find it a, a bit appalling um, that these typical figures that I typically respect, um, who are kind of progressively or liberally inclined uh, figures, just, you know, so uh, um, the assistant uh, pastor at the church that um, we attend wrote an article in response to um, Scott Morrison praying for rain and things like that, which is a great reflection on, you know, um, faith without deeds and things like that. But there's some people that took the opportunity for the fact that Scott Morrison says that he prays about the rain just to ridicule the idea that you'd believe in, the, in an interventionist God at all. Um, and I don't know, I just consider that just bigoted. Um, and then you've just got, yeah, a, a lot of just complete the dismissal. But then you've also strangely got this other subset of, I don't know, pseudo-informed um, uh, writing in popular media um, that tries to ascribe every single thing he says to some anthropological study of Pentecostalism as well um, or, a, or a theological study, um, which is very, very odd because from what I understand, Pentecostal identity in Australia is still in a process of formation um, and it, it's very hard to pin down actually what you're, what you're talking about. Um, yeah, so those are some, some of my initial thoughts. Basically, the critique seems to be, oh, it's just a bit, it's just... It's not. It's very un-Australian. It's a very un-Australian approach to religion. You're taking it a bit too seriously. It's a bit too right. flashy for us. Right. Um, and probably similar with New Zealand, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. No. I on oh, New Zealand would be there'd be much more perplexion. I think. Mm. Um, yes. I mean. I, I mean, we export Hillsong around the world. Yeah. So. It, it yeah. Is so there has native. to be some some knowledge yeah. of it. I mean. Yeah. So I I I mean I have a background that is not 
not so current, but yes. <laughs> um, but I think you're right. Like there's a certain illiteracy that goes on, and this is not just with Pentecostalism, but just generally mm. the understanding of religious communities. There is just a total absence of what people may mean, for example, mm. when they invoke prayer yep. um, for... Um, for rain, um, mm. there's constant references I saw when people were noting as Pentecostalism or discussing this to that Pentecostals believe in divine healing. Yeah, and I thought, well, uh, that's not distinctly Pentecostal yeah. for starters. Yeah. But also, what do they think that that means? I mean, mm. if you read it through Pentecostals' understanding of what that may mean, it's it's more that nature is already saturated in yeah. God's spirit. Yeah. And so that supernatural is not necessarily this moment of intervention in the sense of like the external God who yep. just randomly decides capriciously to intervene yep. to, to disrupt some natural order, but actually to engage in a form of like hypernature, yeah. which yep. is nature is supposed to be flourishing, nature is supposed to be healthy and so yep. on. This yep. and so engages with that in a kind of, um, you know, elevate or extended yep. way and it's supernatural, you know, kind of like that. Yep. So, you know, but... You wouldn't get that discussion. What you get is this idea that he believes in a sky fairy. Yeah. Right? So this is what people were discussing when he says let's pray for rain sort mm. of thing. Um, you know, and, and it's funny because Pentecostalism, of course, has about 300 million adherents in the world. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like you should, it's not like, you you know, no, no one's saying you agree with that. It's just a case of, well, this is there yeah. and it's not exactly small. We're not yeah. talking about And some- also just, so I, I was I was reading one article by a a, a feminist writer, a who I think should have known better, um, just going on about how how like you know she's not anti Christian, she's just anti this these weirdos kind of thing like that, and I just wanted to to say to her like, so is is his version of Christianity just not white enough for you? Because it's because <laughs> it's 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 um, Pentecostalism has kind of deep African. Yeah. Subcontinent. Yeah. I mean, there's um, a couple of, you know, some would say it goes to Azusa Street and sort of black revival and, or African spirituality yeah. and some would say it goes to like Welsh revival, yeah. Wesleyan holiness movements and things. So there are different things flowing. But, but actually I find that interesting that they say, you know, almost it's like it's not Australian enough because if you ask me, Joel, what is one of the hmm. reasons why you're not a Pentecostal? Hmm. It's because I, I, I don't – one of the reasons – I could go on at length. Mm. But one of them is that the radical disconnect between its supposed radical roots mm. and how it is practiced. Yeah. And how it is practiced yep. is, you know, form of mass consumer yep. edification and so yep. on. Often. Not yes. always, yep. often. Yep. And so to say it's like not Australian enough, it's like, well, one of my criticisms would be it's just like, oh, it's 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 pretty Australian in the sense it's kind of <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah. Hillsong plants a church like Starbucks plants yeah. Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, this sort of stuff. So, I am. Um, um, yeah, I should qualify all this by saying that my boss is a Pentecostal, <laughs> uh, and we respect our God. Pentecostal. I mean, God, God's <laughs> that's being, right. God's um, and uh, and we all respect that. Um, yeah, look, I mean, but, uh, I, I'm going to make some. We're going to talk about the, the next part, but yeah. I, and I'm going to make some critical comments. But there are good things to say. I mean. You know, so for example, on the Kids Off Nauru um, hmm. and the Market Challenge campaign talking to um, 
politicians down in Canberra that was led by a group of Christian women, a large share of whom were from Pentecostal churches. Mm. And so there is a shift in Pentecostal thinking towards um, a kind of sense that it's not just about uh, one's own unmediated relationship to God or personal relationship and so on, but yep. actually has these political, social implications to think about what is the nature of the common good and so yep. on. So there are these sorts of things. And I, and I would say actually the Pentecostal communities I was part of often were some of the most caring places yeah, yeah. You know, compared to yep. other places. But I think there are some interesting things still to mm. talk about, about the nature of sort of executive relationship and um, and church or spiritual authority. Mm. Um in this context, so I, I thought I'd start this this part of it, if I can mm. with a little bit of a story, right? Yeah. In 2015, yes, I went to Warrawee Anglican Halls like an annual lecture, I think, mm-hmm. every year. And this year, it was um, the topic was God, religion, and politics, and the speakers were the Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen and the Premier of New South Wales, Mike Baird. Um, and now Jensen gave a really really interesting talk, right, on mm. um, the coronation. Uh, that Archbishop Cranmer did for Edward the Sixth, mm. um, and and the um, oaths uh, that uh, Cranmer put to Edward the Sixth of obedience and what uh, his role was to be as the um, kingly authority in that realm and so on. And there was an interesting, you know, both physical relationship yeah. there and a moment of, of spiritual and civil authority, mm. and the spiritual authority exhorting the civil authority towards. Its purposes, its right ends mm. for exercising that authority. Now, Mike Baird, the Premier, then stood up and gave a personal testimony yeah. about essentially, I'm a good Christian and here's my story and I happen to also be the Premier. Mm. So I found this very incongruous and then I asked a question to Baird. I asked him, how do you understand the relationship between the executive exercising civil authority and the churches or the churches or... How should they interact? How should the executive uh, react in the call of the churches, for example? Now, this this is fascinating to me for a few reasons. One, it shows that basically I shouldn't be allowed to ask questions yep. at events because uh, <laughs> essentially, I'm not kidding, the microphone was snatched away from me. The host, the host for the event looked at me like I was just like some yep. t- bomber coming yep. in to just destroy the whole, you know, well. And then everyone, I, I swear, I could hear hissing yep. because the whole thing was just a massive loving. It was yeah. a massive loving for like, look, he's one of us. Yeah. He's one of us. It's, oh, it feels so good. Yeah. Yes. And, and Mike Baird's answer to my question, I think uh, his answer was essentially, well, I'm a Christian yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that, that's, that, right. that's what it boiled down to. Yeah. Now, I think it's right to think about the virtuous leader. Yes. Right? I think I could elaborate on that. Yeah. But this is also a role yeah. and there was no content of how we think through institutional relationship yeah. that is part of and fundamental to some of the logic of the tradition of church and state and mm. so on in the West. Yeah, no, I think that... that and so on to ScoMo. Yes. So I think that's very much very right. I think that um, uh, things that you hear about both Mike Beard and Scott Morrison, two figures who I think have huge problems with things that they have been deeply involved in. Um, uh, But what you hear in their favour from their religious support base is that they're people of prayer, which is interesting. So they're people of prayer, so um, they're bringing our nation before God in prayer. So I think that that's an interesting thing that people find important. Um, But they're people that we know are guided by the right principles and 
most importantly, values. Um, uh, and that seems to be the, the main appeal of having someone that we know has an authentic faith, religion, what have you, that they're gui- guided by these principles and they're, they're our principles. And that doesn't really, and that doesn't seem to really translate into them having to actually do the right thing. Right. But uh, as long as they've got the principles, yeah. That's so this, I mean, like, so his, his um, senior pastor said, uh, "Who's this?" Uh, this is Scott Morrison. Sorry, mm-hmm. the executive pastor at his church said, mm-hmm. "I think there is great hope that decision making will be influenced by godly principles." Yeah, godly um, principles. So that's an then, phrase. and then his senior partner, pastor partner. Mm, Mm. Senior pastor said, um, I don't dwell too much into it as far as Scott's political world goes. My role in his life is more on a faith base. Yeah. Uh, yes, LPM is a Christian. He regularly goes to a church. With that, my job is to provide a place for him to express yeah. his faith. Yeah. So you're, what you're saying, the vision that you're laying out um, um, is that actually, no, the jo- job of his pastor or priest is it to actually exhort him to obey Divine and natural law, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. To 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 engage in a um, articulation. Of what is the common good? And even to to discipline him. Oh yes, yes. So I find so I find this whole very fascinating. So this idea is very quietest. His mm. former partners, partner. I keep saying partner. Ah, <laughs> his former pastor exhorted Christians to encourage rather than instruct him. Mm. Right. Encourage and just simply say, go for it, Scott. Yeah. You know, I mean, that may be uncharitable, but, yeah. you know. Um, now, I think this uh, this was actually raised by, um, in the States, for example, George W. Bush and Obama, both claimed that, you know, they were of uh, they were Christians and mm. so on. But you could see there's a total absence of a, what I'd call a form of ecclesial discipline. Mm. Now, before anyone starts thinking, oh, my gosh, Charles advocating some sort of hierocratic rule, you mm. know, rule by priests, disciplining and, you know, da-da-da. Mm. No, no, no. What I'm talking about there is, for example, Obama, engages in extrajudicial killings through drone yeah. attacks and then gets to still say, I'm a Christian. Now, yeah. what happens when he goes While to... appropriating Martin Luther King's Bible. Right. To, and then what happens when yeah. he goes to church on a Sunday? Yeah. You know, does anybody turn to him and say, that is wrong? So mm. we had this example with Jeff Sessions recently separating uh, mm. ch- children from their families at the border. Yeah. Um, and some people in the Methodist church started the disciplinary process to make him come and give an account as one of their... Uh, congregants, one of the brothers mm. in the church, to mm. say how it is consistent with being a Methodist. Yeah. When um, after uh, Kevin, uh, Julia Gillard was mm. rolled, um, uh, Kate and I were at St. James and um, the sermon was, and, and uh, sitting behind us, funnily enough, was Kevin Rudd. And the sermon was directly saying about our detention policies and how the idea that we've just said that nobody arriving by boat will ever be settled in Australia and what this will do to families and so on. Mm. And he was comp- and he was talking about that in the context of Jesus saying, I saw uh, the devil, Satan, falling from the sky like lightning, right? Blimey. And I'm going... That's great. Yeah. You know, this is like Ambrose to Theodosius sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, so it's not so discipline in that sense is also about actually saying the claims of the church to pursue good, mm. to act justly. Mm. The things that Scott Morrison even mentioned in his um, in his uh, first speech to Parliament. Mm. Right, that these are not just simply the Christian principles of an unmediated individual, mm. but these are part of an institutional relationship in which there is a body of people mm. that exhort civil authority 
to operate according to right purposes and true ends. Mm. So if you are his... <laughs> well, this is where it gets difficult yeah. because in the Pentecostal sect, you know, one of my criticisms of Pentecostalism is that schism is a way of life, mm. right? So how do you start... And this is not just Pentecostalism, but problem with the church generally. Mm. How do you talk about this mediated relationship yeah. when what we're dealing with is fractured bodies? Yeah. Well, that, that probably leads us quite nicely into our next section. Oh, we <laughs> how have we been talking for a while? I get lost. I get just caught up. It's like the spirit takes over. Staring right into my eyes. <laughs> Staring <laughs> into my sad, sad eyes. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were, uh, we're going to move on now to our next section, which um, is quite closely related. Uh, why Church Why, which is our section every week where we talk about why and how the church, a thing that we love, and are devoted to makes us want to cry in the shower sometimes. Um, this week, we want to do some more reflecting on Little Joel's Adventures in Synod. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so, funny you say Little Joel because I'm, I am 35 going on 36 mm-hmm. and I would be maybe in the, oh, I'd be probably the second youngest person there. Uh, and a 90% over 60, yeah. Yeah. So little, you know. Yeah, but but an intellectual giant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for, so for some context here, um, uh, Joel and I um, go to church together and um, we elected Joel our synod rep. So um, the, 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 the context behind that is, is everyone said, Joel, you're interested in constitutional law. This will be really interesting. <laughs> this will be really fascinating for you. Yeah. Little did they tell me that it is... Mm. <laughs> A challenge. A um, challenge. So uh, one of the uh, observations, so last uh, episode we talked a bit about some of Joel's observations coming from outside of Sydney into Sydney um, and looking at the uh, emphasis on explanation in our in our tradition or our diocese, our, our church life here in Sydney. Um, this time we wanted to talk about something a bit different that Joel has observed, uh, which is... Um, a high level of clericalism uh, in the diocese, um, and not just the, our diocese, but the the evangelical world um, more generally. Now, that might come as a surprise um, that we would consider our diocese clerical. Um, after all, um, the priestly role um, of the of the minister is something that's certainly de-emphasized um, in our neck of the woods. Um, even the idea that you would be a priest, that you dressed dress as a priest or as a, a clergy person, um, I don't think I don't think anybody at Synod would have been dressed in clerical it's garbs. One, it's all one, but he has jeans and jandals as well. <laughs> it's just like jeans and oh, it's just like pick a theme. Just, yeah, pick um, but it seems. Uh, am I getting this right, Joel? That you you see. Um, us as being having this kind of quite maybe a crypto authority authoritarianism in our leadership. 
<laughs> Which is, he, he, he made that sound so just, you know, maybe we've got a little, and then you throw it on crypto authoritarian. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 No. So, yeah. one of the, so <laughs> let's, let's connect it with what we were talking about last week. So, last week we started talking a bit about Palaity Strikes how, Back. Um, in our part one of our expose, Palaity Strikes Back, um, how uh, the Reformation which um, our diocese is very much into um, in a big way, um, emphasised the loss of the authority of the church as the sole interpreter of scripture. So that's one of the things that's celebrated, leaving it to the laity to engage in individual interpretation. But what ends up happening in evangelicalism, um, that what does preaching become? It is becomes a matter of just exposition and explanation and yep. interpretation. On um, So you end up having a clerical class that does the interpreting right. for you, so which I is, think an, this is the, an irony. Yeah, I think this is yeah an irony or the paradox, right? I don't Fair. think clericalism is just, uh, it's not limited to mm. these contexts. So different churches have their problems. Pentecostals have um, almost absolute authority sometimes and mm. the leader. Um, Roman Catholics, you'll hear them talk about it and emphasis on the priest and the, and the diocese or else the curia, Roman curia and so on and with that's fed into sexual abuse and so mm. on. But in evangelicalism, what I seem to see is in low churches generally, mm. this orientation towards focusing on preaching. Mm. So in the ministry of the word, so you could talk about the priesthood of all believers, but because you get that, that the church gathers for that reason mm. to hear that preaching and it's generally very long preaching, <laughs> yeah. right? Um that there then develops this cultural mentality that that is the peak, yeah. that is the height of the um, of the Christian moment, as it were, which everything else then yeah. serves. So there's a sense in which the the very low church orientation, mm. which emphasizes, as we were saying before, the explanatory mm. power, the the preaching mission and office, and so on, becomes mm. its own form of clerical. So I, I mean, I've been struck by living here mm. that this is in my mind the most clerical place I've ever lived in mm. which you have this almost sense of like the politics and the um, and the cultural uh, brinksmanship is almost like a form of charism- dueling charismatic yeah. poles of, yeah. <laughs> you know, priestly male authority sort yeah. of thing, right? Um, so, and I think this, 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 this then has plays out in different ways. So at Synod, for example, we were discussing a property levy mm. in which each uh, uh, receipts from ownership of property for different parishes, part of it would be given to the diocese. Now, as a matter of Anglican polity, it makes total sense. The property does not belong to mm. a discrete parish. It belongs to the diocese um, who holds it in trust for generations and mm. so on. But at Synod, there were very clear debates, very clear arguments put forward by people. They were basically underli- uh, underlying them were a sense of, it is mine, mm. it is my property that I've cultivated and so yeah, on. Yeah. There was also last year a debate around the bishop uh, engaging in conversations around incumbent rectors to help them retire or move yeah. on. Yeah. And there was just outrage at the idea that a bishop would do this yeah. because the incumbency is mine. You know? yeah. And you're going, this is just, my again, the, yeah. you know, this is, this is this is a this is you know not how you know I would think Anglican polity is, but mm. but I think it has that sort of low church mentality in which mm. the clergy becomes, um, and then also sort of almost surrounding a curia. So it's synod. I mean, synod's a fascinating body. As a matter of constitutional yeah. <laughs> practice, you're a fascinating um, body. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I I also enjoy your gym picks. Um, so. You know, there's there's the standing committee, and, and standing committee makes is vested with all the power of synod throughout the year to make the decisions that synod could make. Now, 
Synod can overturn standing committee and mm. apparently has done so once or twice in the 10 years or something. Yep. Um, but the way it constitutionally described this is it's kind of like standing committee is kind of like the uh, equivalent of the vice regal governor yep. in colonial Australia, yeah. right? Invested with complete powers yeah. of, yeah. you know, to engage how they like in some ways. And that body is, you know, very... Um, it's like a curia. It yeah. has it has clergy on it, but it also has kind of set committed people and so on. And you know, this raises really interesting questions for me. About I joked before about mm. you know how how my age and relative relation yeah. to the rest. But how do you as a as a church body? How do you think of it intergenerationally? Yeah, you know, how do you think about diversity? And I don't mean diversity just you know don't hear me saying just simply as an end in itself, mm. but as the reconciled talents and gifts of the whole people, yeah. yep. right? Or as the idea that the church is not just simply. Um, decided by X people, but actually there's a vox populi, vox day. You know, there is mm. a sense in which the wise few, mm. you know, there is a, like, I totally believe in threefold mm. priests and so on, pre, bishop, priest, deacon and so on. Mm. But there is a role for each of them in which they come together as well with the people as such and they mm. encourage that. So, you know, that's at the constitutional level, but then that obviously affects at the personal level, right? Yeah. Like yeah. what is the role then of the the minister, what could say, mm. in relation to the people? That's right. And like it's it's very um, difficult, and um, you you often hear. Um, I, this is tricky um, because people will read into this because I I up until recently worked for a, a church in a strange capacity, um, and so it might sound like I'm making judgments about my own relationship with my rector as an employer. He was, um, he was the chief marketer. <laughs> that's right, but um, but, but I'm not intending that at all, but. Um, I think one of the things that makes um, one of the things that diffuses a lot of the temptations of power, um, especially in a body like the church, is making power relations overt and visible. Um, and conversely, one of the things that makes um, power relations incredibly dominating is making power relations invisible and under the surface. Um, so by actually having someone in a priestly role um, that is up the front, dressed, set apart visibly and reminding everyone, in this role, I have this particular function here, you're actually, I think, um, taking away a lot of the, the subtle social dangers um, that come along with, with that. I mean, that might sound ironic because of the problems in the Catholic Church and things like that. Um, but I think there's something to this, and I think that's even recognised in, in kind of the corporate business world, which is the first time I'll ever, first and only time that I'll ever talk about the corporate and business world as having something to say about the church. But they are recognising that um, uh, workplaces that purport to have egalitarian principles actually have these subver- uh, subterranean, um, quite insidious power relations. And one of the ways that comes out is... Um, uh, you'll often find people who are at churches that profess the priesthood of all believers, um, that the the minister is just a teaching elder and, or whatever, however you want to frame it. Um, there is relationships of incredible bullying and um, domineering and domination going on within people working on a ministry team. And that's something I've seen from a lot of people um, who have been student ministers or assistant ministers and things like that. 
I've, again, I'm not talking about my own yeah, employment. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, even um, at Synod, there was a motion around um, and policies around assistant ministers yeah. and how you deal with precisely the yeah. sort of thing you're, you're talking about. But, but um, I'm so I, I suppose just to, to to distill what I'm saying is that if you're if the um, role of the minister is primarily social because you're not demarcated in any other way um, other than you know I'm 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 a I'm a good bloke kind of thing. That means that all of your social relations will be hierarchical, um, and I think that leads to some very dangerous um, psychology. Well, that I think comes that, out. I think that means you have to engage in a certain role definition, right? So, yeah. so you know, you mentioned the Catholic priest and so on. Now, I'm sure people could make um, their own criticisms of you know how Catholic doctrine is is determined and so on. Mm. You know, maybe that where they see clericalism, I don't know. You know, that, that leave that to their dis- yep. discussion, or whatever. But if you take your general parish priest, yep. right, they do not exercise nearly as much power as low church, mm. um, you know, charismatic evangelicals and so on, because yep. um, there is an understanding of their role, and their role is to be a mediating representative before God yep. and to under institution of the sacraments. And they're and so actually on. too busy doing pastoral work. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> but that's my thing. You know, it's 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 actually what their role is then, yep. you know, you say pastoral work. So if we think about it as like um, that they are meant to serve mm. and elevate the people, Yeah. right? That there is something of that. And we mentioned in the last podcast mm. how, you know, one thing we have encountered is quite a number of people mm. who will say that they are bored and when they say bored it means as in they do not feel that they are being spiritually grown yeah they do not feel that sense of their own vocational talents and gifts being drawn into some exciting project or whatever um and 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 therefore you know undervalued or Mm. that they're just simply almost irrelevant furniture as part of a spectacle yeah, right? like, and this is honestly what I feel like in Senate. I just sit there, and it's just yeah. like kind of this bizarre spectacle. <laughs> so, I, and you know. yeah, and I think one of the other consequences, tragically for for the for the clergy, is that it becomes incredibly lonely, right? Um, because you can only ever relate to the people in your life in these hierarchical manners. Uh, I shouldn't say only. It, there might be a tendency towards that, um, which I think from I don't know. Seeing I I follow a lot of. Um, clergy on social medias that I don't know personally and I just think there seems to be a real problem with isolation yeah um, and, and, that and, goes on. and and then it sort of almost conversely they become the site of the conversation between themselves mm. right so yeah there's isolation to a cast almost yeah um, that will engage with each other and and we've talked about this before I think that 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 creates a danger because whereas most of us exist in worlds in which we have to encounter plurality and have mm. to deal with questions of people thinking, you know, what is this strange irrelevancy and so mm. on. If your entire life is orientated around sort of the same people, mm. then how then do you <laughs> engage with those that are actually sitting in your pew? So one thing it's centered that is just remarkable is even just to see the patterns of speech. Yeah. Um, one person stood up at this year's synod and said uh, that they hadn't read the materials, mm. um, 
now that in itself is not a problem. The material is about 600 pages. Yeah, Nobody yeah. can read them and that's part of the problem. That yeah. means actually only a certain executive class of people actually know what's going on yeah. because there's just an, an inundation of stuff yeah. that you're supposed to read in within a couple of days while you're working, blah, yeah. blah, blah. It's, yeah. it's, there is, I mean, no, I'm sure numerous people have thought about how on, how Synod can be reformed. But anyway, this point was, the person said, I haven't read this thing that we were considering. Hmm. But, and turning to the person who was introducing the, the thing in question, he goes, but I want you to assure me, can you assure me that people I trust have read it? Hmm. And he goes, yes. And then the person at the front listed off a few names. And I thought, he's just listed off the people that are of his hmm. tribe. Yeah. You know, certain people. And then, and, then the, and then the questioner said, thank you, I'll vote for it. <laughs> and you think, now here what we have is just an understanding that it's a discrete class of people engaging in like an internal conversation, mm. right? Um, you know, even patterns of speech. I mean, obviously Christian patterns of speech yeah, yeah. emulate each other and they should in some way. Yeah. But, you know, at some point there's almost the in-jokes yeah. and the, you know, the phrase under God yeah. uh, that gets used in every second yeah. sentence as a way of sort of distancing one's agency from the question of God's sovereignty or yeah. something. You know, those sorts of things become just so formative and you think, at a certain point, it, it just becomes look unreal. Yeah, yeah. Like this is uncoupled yeah. from an understanding that I think, you know, the church should be, as I said, that reconciling of the gifts and talents of yeah. all people. Um, I, I, I'd be interested to hear what you think and maybe this might be an, um, a, a discussion point to end on. Uh, Collars. And it kind of ties the laity strikes back part one and two together. Uh, the exposition explanation part and the clericalism part. I I was at um so uh, my wife Sarah and I are transitioning to a new church um, community uh, in the next um, little while over the next little while, and we've been visiting there on and off for a while. And um, I heard a young preacher got up to preach, and um, before he prayed before the sermon, he used the phrase "We're about to hear from God's word." Before he preached, and I and that just really struck me, and I realized that I'd heard that phrase used a lot in evangelical circles before a sermon starts. That actually, you're equating the delivery of a sermon right. with hearing God's word, yeah, right. <laughs> rather than at the hearing the recitation of the gospels or something like that. The or, the the or Christ the ex, exposition through the word, the exposition of the word is hearing God's word, right. Which, I don't know, have you heard that phrase used in that way before? I thought, I just assume that underpins a lot of evangelical thought. I mean, I don't know, to be honest, but like, I mean, I don't know how I think about these fully, but like, isn't the word, you know, scripturally, doesn't it refer to Christ, in which case the Bible is what mediates Christ to us? No, I I don't think people are now... So no, that's why. That. So, so I've 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 read about. I remember Graham Ward writing about this and saying that he was amongst a group of evangelicals, and when they said this about the word, and he said, "Well, of course, the word is in the Bible," mm. and there was a sharp intake of breath. And this yeah. sort of, so, I don't. I I won't pin flags to myself on this one, but like, I, I, yeah, it, it does. It but, creates an interesting dynamic, of course, yeah. because if you then say <laughs> at the point of like, you know. It's not like hear what the Spirit is saying or something. I guess if you, if you then say you're about to hear the word, yeah. it really puts a bit of a, a yeah. bit of a mantle and a bit of a pressure upon yeah. one's shoulder. Yeah, but I, and I think you know, and that gets back to my point about the the power of interpretation of the clerical class. 
um, actually being elevated um, by a particular form of um, uh, evangelicalism um, rather than uh, being reformed. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and that being, yeah, the... the that the interpretation offered by the preacher would be called God's word. Mm. <laughs> Very unusual, but that, that's just a thought that I've had. Well, are we done? Yeah, I think um, we're now out. We're now out as in um, we have to start our own church because no one will take us in. <laughs> um, My name's Mother Chibubu now. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why, this is why, Dave, mm. uh, we, we got to stop doing this because... If we keep up this way, we will never be profiled as one of the up-and-coming podcasts on an eternity. <laughs> it's never going to happen. Kylie Beach, where are you? What, What's going on? What is happening here? Like, I, is this a conspiracy? Yeah. I should say, when, I, when we go on and on about the things that we don't like about our church, we're the last people um, that would tell you to kind of be breakaway um, post whatever, post of whatever. Dave's I, lying. This is all a prelude no. to setting him up as a... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I Just go to church, <laughs> but just don't expect... To get, as our producer says, <laughs> don't expect too much. Just take, take a prayer book with you. Yeah. Take a prayer book with you. Do some light prayer book reading. Yeah. It'll as we were fine. visiting around the place, um, we went to a particularly bad service that was just... I said, I used, I actually talked to one of the pastors there afterwards and said, the banality of that gave me an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I just, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating. I just, my Sarah and I were just miserable. And I, we went home and Sarah just read the prayer book at me. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> while, while, I, while you played what? Mountain Blade Warband. <laughs> And I think one thing to add on all this is it's just hope. I don't think this is just the mad rantings of mad us. Yeah. But actually, we may, anyway. And that's why we deserve Love. a feature profile. <laughs> <laughs> but in lieu of a, a profile uh, in Attorney Magazine or whatever. We're going to do, that's right. In lieu of that, what we're going to do is a podcast host swap, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to take over, what is it? That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm and I'm going on um, <laughs> contemplative what good conversation times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh dear, no one will have. Um, please uh, <laughs> like and uh, like our stuff um, and subscribe to it. Um, you can find us on Stitcher, um, Apple Podcast. Um, what else? What am I? SoundCloud, missing? SoundCloud, Twitter. Um, follow us uh, on Twitter um, at Peace Talks Cast. Uh, on Facebook, you can like our page, which is uh, Facebook slash com slash Peace Talks Pado P A D O. And please share our stuff around. We're still really trying to build up a following. Um, we we uh, have very very thin skins uh, skins and think that we deserve much more love than we get. Thank you for the people that wrote reviews. Some said someone said that we were the best cultural Marxism going around. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much. We got another that. one that was like their friendship is so heartwarming and enlivening and and welcomes you in and all this. And I was going, oh, that's really nice. Mm. And yet we still just go to the movies by ourselves with our mate Tim. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> uh, so please please do all those things, share us around. Um, and yeah, that we'd really appreciate that. Um, and uh, if you've got any comments, 
feedback, um, please hit us up on the social medias and we'll try and get back to you. Um, and probably hopefully less aggressively than the people that I got back to last time. And I'm sorry <laughs> if I caused any offence. Um, uh, and that's everything. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you hopefully next month. Bye. Bye.